He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in him and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon our time in his word today. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is only through your word that we have the vital information we need to be able to properly understand who we are, who you are, uh, understand the plight of our lives, that we are born spiritually dead, we are born alienated from your life, and that we are born separated from you, and the only hope is Jesus Christ. And the only way in which we can have life is by trusting in him, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to you except by him. Father, we're so thankful that you have given us your word. And as we study it, we have learned so much about your grace and your goodness and all that you have given us. As we've studied in Ephesians, from Ephesians 1, 3 on, learning that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That means you have enriched us, strengthened us with more than we can ask or think, as Paul mentions in his closing prayer in this section. Father, we pray that today as we continue to study who we are in Christ, in the body of Christ, the nature of the church, that we may come to have a higher understanding, higher appreciation for all that you have given us in the church, that we are in this unique organism, the body of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to these things that we study today. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, as we continue to go forward in this epistle and in this section, uh, as we go from Ephesians 2, 11 on into chapter 3, we are studying about the church, God's masterpiece. This is what we studied last time in the conclusion to the previous section where Paul wrote, For we are his workmanship. And we studied that word there, uh, poema, uh, which has the idea of a work of art as something that has been uh, specifically, intentionally crafted, artistically designed. This elevates our understanding of who we are in Christ. For this applies to us corporately as the body of Christ and individually as members of the body of Christ. I was, um, as we talk about the church, we 
often realize the church is important and in many denominations people talk about the church what's funny is that when I was a young pastor and went to a church that did not have as strong a teaching background as they should have or a lot of the people didn't it was what was used to be called a union church a union church is an old name for an interdenominational church, not in the modernistic sense, but in the early days of this country when new towns or cities were founded and there you didn't have enough Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, or whatever to form their independent denominational churches, they would come together and they would call their church a union church. And for many years in smaller communities, they would have itinerant ministers come through. One week it might be a Presbyterian, the next week a Methodist, the next week a Baptist, and so on. And so they had these constitutions where you would allow for uh, different denominational practices. And if the current pastor didn't believe in the practice, didn't think that was biblical, that he would agree to bring in someone from that particular denomination and Uh, he would carry that out. And so there were older people in this congregation that had really come out of different backgrounds. A lot of the younger ones, in fact, had come out of Bible churches in the Houston area. But it was interesting. I I kept hearing this phrase, and and it struck me as odd because I'd really never heard it. I was spending a lifetime growing up in in church, and not just one church, but I had been uh, in many different churches. I'd never really heard... Christians use this phrase, but I would hear someone say, well, you know, that that lady so-and-so has a lot of problems with her husband. If we could just get him in church, or so-and-so has a problem teenager, if we could just get them in church. And the solution for so many things was always defined as if we could just get them in church. I kept thinking about that and said, that just you can get all kinds of people in church, and that's not going to change them. What they need to get is the Word of God in them, and that's what transforms them. It's not being physically present in church. It's not attending church. That's often part of the religiosity that has attached itself to some forms of Christianity. Uh, We are, of course, uh, to be involved in a local church, but it is not the being involved in a local church that transforms us. It is learning the Word of God in that context of a local church so that there we learn to uh, serve the Lord and there we learn to relate to others in the body of Christ. And we'll touch on a lot of these topics as we go through the remainder of the epistle uh, to the Ephesians. But the focus on this section of Ephesians, in fact, it's been it's been foreshadowed in the first chapter and the first half of the second chapter is this emphasis on this new entity, this new organism that came into existence after the death of Christ called the church. And the church is identified as the body of Christ and also the bride of Christ. These are terms that have tremendous honor associated with them. It's one thing to say we are a work of art, but then this work of art that we are as the church is is then identified as the bride of Christ. How greater honor can we be given than to be called the bride of Christ or the body of Christ? So this should elevate our whole image of who we are after salvation as members of of the church. 
So what I want to do to begin with this this morning is to take us through uh, the remainder of this opening section of of the um, of chapters one through three. Remember that when we look at Ephesians, there are three sections to Ephesians, as we see on this slide. There is the emphasis on the wealth that we have in Christ, all of the riches that we have in Christ, all of the blessings that we have. Going back to verse three, we're told that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And the word blessing has the idea of enrichments, uh, the things that God has given us, the things that he has bestowed upon us, all of the assets that he has given us in the spiritual life that like no other people in all of history, no other group of God's people in all of history uh, have ever had these these kinds of enhancements or enrichments. They're given to each one of us as as members of the body of Christ, and this is very different. That's why when Paul begins this this next section in two eleven, he tells the Ephesian believers, he says, "Remember who you once were. You were Gentiles in the flesh." And if you think about that, when we start working through that verse, we'll go back and see that in the Old Testament you had a an age called the age of the Gentiles between Adam and Abraham, where all that there were on the earth were Gentiles, and so they they were not a special organized people of God like we have today that you had a patriarchal system so that worship was and and spiritual life was more focused on the family and family sacrifice family worship family ritual then because of the failure at the tower of babel god calls out abraham to be the father of a new special people and that's the jewish people and they had more uh, enhanced rituals and more revelation. And God had a specific purpose for them in order to uh, communicate his word and that it would be through the Jewish people that God would provide revelation and would provide a savior. And so there's this distinction that came between the Gentiles and the Jews that causes great separation. And then with Christ, you have something new where there is now a union of Jew and Gentile. And so as we have studied that there's this, uh, this is brought out through the use of the various pronouns that are used. We have the second person plural you, which addresses you Gentiles as it does here in Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that you, you all, plural, once Gentiles in the flesh. So that's talking and clearly identifies the, the you as, as Gentiles. But then there's a distinction uh, with the we. And the we refers earlier to we Jews who first came to Christ, who were first believers. So there's the we Jews first. And then by the time you get to this section, as we've already seen a couple of times in earlier in chapter 2, the we begins to shift from we being Jews to we being the Jew and Gentile uh, together. For example, back in verse 4, uh, we're introduced to the main subject of the last 
that first section, verses 1 through 7, but God. What did God do? He loved us, and the us there is now Jew and Gentile together. And verse 5, even when we, that is we Jew and Gentile, even when we uh, were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together. Now, I want you to watch this word as we go forward. The word in this, especially in this uh, next section from 3.11 down to uh, 22, you can highlight or underline the words together and both together and both because the emphasis in this next section is going to be on what God is doing in bringing Jew and Gentile together in the body of of Christ so just by way of of review what we saw in Ephesians chapter 1 was an opening section emphasizing these enrichments, these blessings that are bestowed upon us through ministries of the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are each uh, assigned different uh, enrichments or, or blessings to us in the body of Christ. It introduces the idea of what we have in Him. This introduces an idea of the corporate body of Christ. And so as I've taught this, one analogy that came to mind was when we are emphasizing the corporate body and the blessings for the corporate body, it doesn't mean it's it's just corporate because if you have a team, for example, you have a sports team, what applies to the team applies to each individual on the team. Okay, so if you were to think about what is the mission of any sports team? Pick your favorite sports team, college football, professional basketball, hockey, whatever it may be. What is the mission? What is the primary objective of every sports team? It's to win. That's their job. That's their mission. The That corporate objective is applied to each member of the team. Their job is to help the team win. So you have things that are true both corporately and individually. But because each individual team member has different roles and responsibilities on that team, not everything that is stated, uh, that may be stated about uh, the corporate entity applies equally to each and every individual. So sometimes there are distinctions between individual responsibilities but but overall, the corporate responsibilities apply to each and every member on the team. The same is true for the body of Christ. What is ours corporately is also ours individually. And this is what's brought out in that uh, first section from 3 through 14, is this emphasis on what God has provided for us both corporately and individually. And then we see at the end of that introduction, a prayer, just as we'll see at the end of chapter 3, a prayer. So chapter 1 is the introduction, verses 1 through 14, followed by a prayer. Chapter 2, 1, down through 322, uh, or excuse me, down to actually not all the way to 322, but to um, 313, you have uh, the next section, and then that's followed by a prayer in 14 to 22. 
So you have the prayer in 15 to 23, which is a prayer of understanding that which God has revealed to us so that we might grow spiritually. And Paul is praying this for them, and he prays with thanksgiving in verse 16, and he reminds them that when that he frequently mentions them in prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And we studied there that the word spirit there should be capitalized. It's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who reveals things to them that their eyes of their understanding might be enlightened that they might know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance which I translated the wealth of the glory of his inheritance so this was the focal point of that that prayer and then in chapter 2 there is a shift at the end of the prayer Uh, Excuse me, before we go to that, at the end of that prayer, he emphasizes that which will be significant for the body of Christ. So we see this foreshadowing to his subject, which is the church. He says in verse 22, And he, God the Father, put all things under his feet, that is, God the Son, and gave him, God the Son, to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he drives to this clear focus on what is the church, the body of Christ, and how do we fit within that in terms of our roles and responsibilities based on understanding all that God has provided for us. Then in chapter 2, in the first 10 verses, he describes who we were before we were saved, what God did for us in making us alive together in Christ, and what our purpose is when we get down to verse 10. So it begins in verses 1 through 3. 1 and 2, if you remember, talked about the Gentiles. They are spiritually dead, dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians 4.18 defines that as being separated or alienated from the life of God. So this is not like a dead person who can't do anything because there's no longer any capabilities there. It is simply someone who is no longer has the real life that God had given them. They are separated from the life of God, and so they must be given life. This is why Jesus came, he who is the life. He is the uh, truth, the, the way, the truth, and the life. So he provides life for us. So one and two described the life of the unsaved Gentile. They walked according to the course of this world. And we'll see that uh, shift, that contrast with the end of verse 10, that we are now to walk in good deeds. Verse 3 brings the Jews into it among whom, that is, among the sons of disobedience, in verse 2, we also all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. So Gentiles are spiritually dead. 
Jews are spiritually dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, did what? Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. That's when we first see this word together. We're made alive together, Jew and Gentile. Not Paul and Ephesus, but Jew and Gentile are made alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. We've been raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places. And then Paul concludes that section saying, For we, that now is we, Jew and Gentile, we the church. It emphasizes their individuality just as when it says we were dead in trespasses uh, and sins, he made us alive together. That applies individually, but it is also corporately true. When he says we are his workmanship, that's we individually are this work of art, this masterpiece, but it is also true of the whole body. The whole body of Christ is this masterpiece, this work of art that's created in Christ Jesus that distinguishes it from the people of God before uh, before Abraham. There was, nothing like that was ever said of the Gentiles in the pre-Abrahamic period as, as, as believers. And nothing like that was said of the Jews in the Old Testament from Abraham to Christ. There's a lot that is said about how God loved Israel, but nothing that is like this. And uh, somebody raised a question yesterday, said, well, when I was talking about this, said, well, isn't somebody going to object and say, well, are we going to feel bad about this when we're in heaven? that we're going to be with these other believers and they're going to say, well, we didn't have all the privileges and positions that you church-age believers had. And of course not. They're not going to have a sin nature, so they're not going to be jealous. They're not going to be envious. All of us will have our eyes open to understand the perfect plan of God and righteousness, and we will all rejoice in every aspect of it and whatever part we each had to play in that. So verse 10 now elevates who we are in Christ. Now it's going to, this sets us up for what's going to come in verse 11 and following. And so Paul is going to move into this, and that's indicated in verse 11 where he says, therefore, that therefore indicates he's moving to an application now of what he has said in verses 1 and 2. He says, remember, that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. So this introduces a new section in this section from 2 1 down to, uh, what, what verse was that? 3 13. This is the beginning of this new section to emphasize what, it, what, who composes the body of Christ. And so in verses 11 to 22, we have our first part here. And in verses 11 and 22, we learn how God brought this new entity into existence. He talks about the plight of the Gentiles in 2, 11, and 12. It reminds us to some degree of what he said in 2, 1, and 2, but it expands it uh, just a little bit. He talks about five problems that Gentiles had. Number one, they were without Christ. 
And we should understand that not just in the simple sense of they weren't saved, they didn't have Christ, but they didn't have a Messiah. There was no Messiah given to the Gentiles. The Messiah was coming to the Jewish people. There's no understanding among the Gentiles of a Messiah. So they are without a Messiah, without Christ. Number two, they're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Now, I want you to look at that language. It says that they were uh, aliens and strangers. Now, if you look down at verse 19, Paul says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. So, see, we have the problem in verse 12, but the solution comes through Christ on the cross where these problems are uh, corrected. So, first problem, they're without Christ. Second problem, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Third problem, strangers from the covenants of promise. These are the covenants related to the Abrahamic covenant. They all had a promise of a future. You had the Abrahamic covenant, then you had the land covenant. The main components of the Abrahamic covenant were land, seed, and blessing. So, you have the land covenant. Then you had the seed covenant or the Davidic covenant. Then you have uh, the new covenant, which relates to worldwide blessing. So Gentiles in the age of Israel were separated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. As a result, they had no hope, no uh, conviction, no certainty of a future because they had no revelation other than that which came through the Jews, and they were without God in the world. So we'll study the implications of all of those when we go through it. And then Paul says, but now, this is the solution, now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off, you were far off what? You were alienated and strangers. You were far off. But now you have been brought near. And the Greek there is interesting. It means that you have become near. You were far off. Now you have become near. It, indic- it uses uh, the Greek word genomai, which indicates that you become something. You're in a state now that is something that you were not uh, prior to that. Now, how does that happen? Well, this is explained in verses 14 through 18. Verses 14 through 18 present the reconciliation solution, that the problem is that they were far off, and now they're going to be brought together. How does this happen? And that's what's important to understand here at the beginning. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace, and he's made both one. Look at that word. Both. How many are in both? Are, can three be both? Can four be both? No. Both is two. Who are the two? We've already been introduced to this earlier in the chapter. The two are the Gentiles and the Jews. So when it says they made both one, he's talking about Jew and Gentile are now uh, made one. And he's broken down the middle wall of separation. That was the law. He's broken down. Christ broke down that middle wall of separation, which means he's the end of the law, that the law is no longer in effect, for the law is what created this middle wall. And now, according to verse 15, he's nullified that uh, in his flesh. 
that and then nullifying it ends the enmity, the enmity that was embedded in the law. Jews could not have relations with Gentiles. They couldn't go over to their house for dinner or it would render them ceremonially unclean. We saw that with um, uh, with Peter in Acts chapter 10, that Peter is given this vision from God, a t- huge tablecloth comes down from heaven with all these food, all this food on it, and God says, eat it. And most of the food was unclean, and, and Peter says, no, I can't do that. And it relates to what was about to happen, that Gentiles were coming to invite Peter to their home back in Caesarea by the sea and he knew that under the law he couldn't do that but God was making it clear that he had now made uh, this possible and that Peter was to go go with him so prior to Christ there's this enmity between Jew and Gentile there is this wall of separation between Jew and Gentile there's an antagonism and a hostility between Jew and Gentile but by Christ's death Uh, He destroys that middle wall of separation and creates in himself at the end of verse 15 one new man from the two, thus making peace. So again, he's bringing these two together, Jew and Gentile, in Christ. There is now going to be no enmity uh, between them. So then we see the purpose of his death in verse 16. His death is for the purpose of producing this one new body. So you have, actually, you have two barriers that are described here. Barrier one is the barrier of the law between Jew and Gentile, but then both Jew and Gentile are separated from God by a barrier. Jesus Christ destroys both barriers so that he can create in himself one new body that is reconciled to God. Verse 16, he might reconcile them. What's the next word? Both. See, there we have it again. So circle it, connect it to the other both. Both is two. He can reconcile them both, that is Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, ending the enmity. So something radically has taken place now. This is not the adding of Gentiles to Israel, but it is replacing both the Israel economy, the dispensation of Israel, and he is replacing the Gentile so that now there will no longer be Jew or Gentile in the body of Christ. These ethnic distinctions will no longer no longer apply. And so the result of this is that Jesus could come through his uh, apostles to preach or proclaim peace to you who are far off. Peace is the opposite of anxiety, the opposite of enmity, the opposite of of uh, antagonism. Preach peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. This is a peace with God that uh, where there's no longer a spiritual barrier. It is not like world peace or the kind of peace that most people think of today. And then the conclusion is in verse 18. He says, for through him... What? We both have access by one Spirit to the Father. So that's the third time we have the use of the word uh, both. And so this emphasizes that, that it is the Jew and the Gentile brought together in Christ. This is our new role. This is our new 
a place because Christ has destroyed the wall of enmity by his death on the cross. And then in verses 19 through 22, Paul comes back to give the results and the new reality of this union of these two Jew and Gentile now into one body. And he starts it off by saying, Now therefore, now as a result of this, here's the consequence of it. You, you Gentiles, how did he start this? You Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise in verse 12. Now he says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. See, before they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, but now they're going to be fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, you might think, well, that refers to the saints and members of the household of God. That refers to Old Testament saints. How do you know it doesn't? Look at verse 20. The household of God has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's not talking about Old Testament prophets. That's why it puts apostles first. Apostles are a church-age authority structure. You don't have apostles in the Old Testament. The prophets here are, if it was prophets and apostles, it would be Old Testament prophets and then New Testament apostles. But because it's apostles and prophets, we're talking about New Testament gifts of apostles and prophets. Furthermore, when you get down to... um, when you get down to verse, where is that? Uh, the 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 uh, excuse me, the apostles and prophets are the foundation in verse uh, in verse twenty here that they are the foundation, not and that can't be Israel because the apostles and prophets are not the foundation and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. None of that can apply to Israel. This morning when I first woke up. Uh, Part of what I usually do on Sunday mornings, having thought through the passage and worked through things in my head a lot, I will sit down and while I'm drinking my morning coffee, I'll skim through some different commentaries. And one of the commentaries that's a rather recent commentary, I won't mention it by name, but it's written by a man who is uh, extremely reformed in his theology. He's a very, very strong, if not a high Calvinist, and he argues uh, in his opening introduction to this section that the Gentiles are now because of the cross they're added to Israel which of course for in reformed theology is the church of the Old Testament this is one of the examples I give especially when I talk to a, a Jewish audience of the difference between a figurative and literal uh, interpretation of scripture in a figurative interpretation of scriptural, Israel is the church of the Old Testament. They're never called that, but that's what they say, that Israel's the church of the Old Testament and the church is the Israel of the New Testament. See, they don't take the words church and Israel literally. That's why Reformed theology and other theological systems like that uh, have really adopted a, a forms of replacement theology. In literal interpretation, Israel means Israel, the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not all Israel is true spiritual Israel, but all spiritual Israel in the Old Testament is what? Ethnic Israel also. 
So Israel means Israel in a literal interpretation, and the church means the church in a literal interpretation. And so here, the household of God is another name for the church because that's what's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ as the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being built together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so we'll study that and to see how that relates to the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells each of us. So that takes us through verse 22, and then we come to verse or to verse 1 in chapter 3, which introduces something new to this, this discussion, and that is the idea that the church as a new organism, a new entity, unlike anything that precedes it, was never revealed before. It was never revealed in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. That's what the word mystery means, is an previously unrevealed information. And so Paul starts in verse 1. He says, for this reason, for this reason, because of all that I've just said about what Christ has done in removing the enmity between Jew and Gentile, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the, uh, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And then he stops. You'll see in your Bible probably something like an M dash, a long dash, which indicates he breaks off that thought because his mind is moving so fast, he just jumps right into what he is he is starting to say, and he leaves off his main thought, and he doesn't pick it up again until verse 7. In verse 7 he says, Of which I have been made, I, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me, uh, given, uh, given to me and the effective working of his power. So he breaks off, and 2 through 6 expresses this one thought developing the idea that the church is uh, has been a mystery. It was never previously revealed at all. So Paul breaks into his opening sentence, and the whole thing is his emphasizing that Christ has called him as an apostle, an apostle for the mystery. It is his responsibility to give this new information. That's not that it wasn't given to the other apostles, but that he's the primary one. The, the, the majority of the revelation related to the church was given to him, and his special mission as an apostle was to the Gentiles. So he says in verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for y'all... For you all Gentiles, for you Gentiles. And then he breaks into that. He says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. And here is one of the key verses for the idea of dispensationalism. Dispensation means to distribute something. It's the Greek word oikonom, or related to oikonomos, which means the house law. And so that shows something distinct about this period that emphasizes the grace of God. And that this isn't just the dispensation of the grace of God, but it's the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me. So it is the information about this present dispensation of the grace of God which was given to Paul for them to help them understand their new role 
and that would be us. We're all, in, in this room anyway, all Gentiles. Many of those listening are Gentiles, that we have all been given the special privileges as believers in this dispensation. And he goes on to say how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, the previously unrevealed information, as I have briefly written about already, uh, that you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And then he defines what he means by mystery in verse 5, which in other ages was not known to the sons of men as it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy, what? Apostles and prophets. So the use of that phrase again, apostles and prophets, tells us it can't refer to Old Testament prophets because they were not given this information in the Old Testament. So this phrase, apostles and prophets, has to refer to New Testament apostles and prophets who are the ones through whom new revelation was given once the church age began. And so the, the um, uh, giving of this new information through the uh, apostles and prophets establishes the uniqueness of this church age. And that is what's said in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. See, they were previously excluded from the covenants of promise back in verse 12. But now they have a new promise. They're partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. For the purpose, purpose is given in verse 6, the purpose that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, fellow heirs with who? With the, with the Jews, fellow heirs with the Jews, um, and partakers of the promise in Christ uh, through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God uh, given to me the, by, by the effective working of his power. And then he talks about the purpose of this mystery doctrine, the purpose of the church, starting in verse 8 and going down uh, to verse 13. And he says, To me who am less than the least of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable wealth of Christ. There it comes back to that theme that we have in these first three chapters, the wealth that we have in Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, that is the partnership in the body of Christ, that mystery, the church, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So part of our role, part of our responsibility is to be witnesses to the angels, to the holy angels and to the following angels. Uh, I mean, to the fallen angels. And so we are, um, we are witnesses, we're testimonies to the angels, and that brings in the whole issue of the angelic conflict. And then he says that all of this is according to God's purpose so that we can have boldness and access in confidence through faith in him. So this is extremely important to understand this, and it drives us to a point where now Paul says to them, don't worry about me and the tribulations I go through because this is your glory. This demonstrates the importance of you, in other words. 
And then he closes in prayer, starting in verse uh, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And so he shows his submission to the authority of Christ and focuses on his mission and that God would grant to them, the Gentiles, according to the wealth of his glory, to be strengthened in might through his spirit. So that's what we should be praying for for ourselves, that we could be strengthened in this might, that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, and that rooted and grounded in love, important phrase, that, that it's a foundation for the spiritual life, And then he says, what may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length, the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now that phrase, width, length, depth, and height, is one that's confused a lot of people. People try to figure out what each one of those things are. When you say that something has width, length, depth, and height, what are you saying? It has dimensions, okay? That's that's just a metaphor, What Paul is saying here is that we can understand the dimensions of God's love. Well, his love is infinite. But but in other words, what he's saying is that we can know the extent of God's love in our life, and it's boundless. So we're going to constantly be exploring that, and we'll never come to a point where we fully comprehend all of it. But that's what we're to comprehend is the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That doesn't mean that knowledge is irrelevant. Knowledge, for something to pass knowledge, first you have to have knowledge, then you go beyond in terms of the application and expansion of that. And knowledge here is gnosis, and it goes beyond that into a more directive application of that knowledge. And we dealt with that some in Peter with the understanding of the word epinosis, and we'll see it, uh, we'll go through that again when we get there. For the purpose that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is another phrase describing the the spiritual maturity that God is producing in our lives to make us like Christ. Okay, so we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then he closes with this tremendous benediction. He says, "Now, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. See, we've I've talked about that, used that phrase over and over again in the first uh, chapter and a half as we've talked about this. What God has given us is beyond anything that we ever thought about asking for, anything that we can imagine, anything that we think about. God has given us more than that already, and it is according to the power of, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us. And then he says to him, closes out, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And so as we go through this, we, our concepts of the church and who we are as members of the church and the uniqueness and distinctiveness of the church will be expanded beyond anything that we've thought of before because it is through us, this masterpiece, this, this, this artistic expression of God, this artistic creation that is greater than anything else. 
is going to put on display his grace. That's what he talks about back in Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to come, he might show or demonstrate the exceeding riches or exhibit it, the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that's what we have to look forward to, and next time we'll start getting into a little more of an introduction to what the church is, so we have some idea here, because what he's talking about here is not the local church. Not once in in Ephesians does he talk about the local church. He talks about the universal church, the body of Christ, and the bride of Christ. So we'll begin looking at that next Sunday morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity to focus on uh, what you're doing now to understand this uh, overview of the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3, elevating our thoughts about who we are in Christ, who we are in the church, the significance of the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, and all that's involved in this, taking us to uh, a new level of thought and appreciation for what you are doing in and through us in this church age. Now, Father, we pray that uh, if anyone is listening, that they would understand about the gospel. The gospel is, is good news about what you have provided for us, the good news about what you've given us. That in your, The good news is that we were born spiritually dead, separated from you, alienated from life, but you've given us life in Christ. And by simply believing in him, trusting in his person, trusting in his work that he died for us paid the penalty for our sin though the sin is no longer the issue the issue is trusting in christ and by trusting in him we have everlasting life now father we pray that you challenge all of us to think in on a higher plane when it comes to thinking about who we are in christ and in the body of christ and our roles and responsibilities as church age believers and we pray this in christ's name amen